a lot of times people think that negative messaging they may get from an executive within the organization or anyone else is coming from the person themselves when it's actually the founder. Back in 2020, I was really starting to deconstruct my role in an MLM and whether or not I wanted to continue in it. I wasn't ready to fully give it up yet, and I was just kind of dipping my toe into the waters of, is this right? Is this okay? So as a stopgap measure, a band-aid, if you will, I started this podcast with my friend called The Common Cult. And our whole thing was like a candy-coated true crime vibe where we would deep dive groups, like modern day groups that were either cultish or very culty. And we would try to kind of like tongue in cheek answer the question, is there a cure for the common cult? And we would rate these culty groups on a scale a la Keith Raniere of volleyballs, like zero to a hundred, a hundred being like super culty. We even did an episode on MLMs, I believe. And I think I gave it like a 56 at the time of, of the one to a hundred volleyball scale. We were studying people like Adam Newman from WeWork or Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos or Teal Swan, Keith Raniere, Jeff and Shalia from Twin Flames. Yes. All the way back in 2020. So many seemingly narcissistic and obviously problematic cult leaders. And we were looking into what kind of personality traits and behaviors these leaders of modern day cults had. And it all fascinated me so much. But I did not make the connection to leaders of pretty much every MLM. And I didn't really make that connection until I stumbled onto Dr. Susanna Kislenko's work. As a social psychologist, Susanna studies leadership in the entrepreneurial context. More specifically, she is focused on founder leadership past the sexy startup phase. She uses, for real, PhD qualitative research methods. <laughs> she pulls back the curtain on the challenges and potentially darker organizational consequences of long-term founder leadership, including founder syndrome. So this is a fascinating conversation, and I'm putting it here towards the beginning of this series in episode two, really early on, because I think part of what it takes to be a model cult member is to be the things your founder wants and needs. And what is that? And what is founder syndrome? And how does this affect the group member? And all of those things. Join myself and Dr. Susanna Kislenko as we discuss all of this. Also, if you want to find her, you can find her over at Susanna Kislenko over on Instagram and give her a follow over there. And now we get into our conversation. Okay, Susanna, can you tell us a little bit about your research? And maybe even tell us a little bit about why you wanted to research founder syndrome in the first place. Yeah, um, I would be happy to share. So 
I think the first important thing to share is I had no interest in doing a PhD ever. <laughs> I, um, I had done an undergrad in international business and then worked in the nonprofit sector and I did a master's degree in political science and I thought that was it for as far as academia went. And I was very happy to be back in the real world, so to speak. And then my real world was working in the nonprofit sector in Canada. And I had a couple of experiences that were in quite a toxic workplace with what I now know is a, a founder who had uh, continues to have a deep case of founder syndrome. And so at the time, Steve Jobs was still alive. Mm. And um, I remember kind of making a little note for myself, like I wrote down the characteristics of the particular founder I was working with. And I wrote down the things I was noticing about Steve Jobs, uh, you know, just from the outside. And um, I was like, huh, <laughs> I don't, I think it's possible that this thing, this issue might be beyond the nonprofit sector, might be beyond mm-hmm. Canada. And so, it, you know, those questions kind of stayed with me. And eventually that led me to do my PhD. And so my, my PhD is in organizational behavior, but what I um, focus on is leadership and in particular founder leadership past startups. So if a founder in any sector anywhere in the world um, hasn't sold their company or stepped away for in any way and they continue to lead, I study that. And I study um, a number of the problems that can arise out of that, including founder syndrome. Okay. Are you finished with your dissertation or are you still completing it? No, no, I'm done. I, I okay. finished it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So I, just, I didn't even ask you this, but if you, I was wondering about how long it took from, you know, starting this to research to completing your dissertation to defending it. And if you got any pushback on that. Yeah. On the topic itself. Yes. Yeah. That's a good question. So I was, so it's interesting. I don't know if you know, but a lot of European PhD programs are different than North American ones in that they allow you to go straight into your project. So they can actually be a lot shorter than North American ones. Like they can be three, four years. But I went to, I did my PhD at a business school called the ESA Business School and they based their model completely on the North American model. Um, And so uh, so I had all the like first two years of coursework, then comprehensive exams, then um, my proposal, then my defense. So altogether it was five and a half years. Okay. Um, That's a big chunk of your life that you worked on that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it really is. I mean, it's it's been a huge chapter. Um, And, you know, to your second question, which I think is a really important one in this context, I started my PhD in 2015. And back then we did not have public cases such as, for example, Theranos. Um, Mm -hmm. We didn't have Succession as a TV show. Yeah. Right. So we didn't have any public things. So you know, my, my PhD supervisors, for example, in the beginning, you know, were supportive of me, but I don't think they totally were sold that this was like a thing, mm-hmm. you know, and as soon as Theranos came out, like as soon as Elizabeth Holmes started getting attention for the fraud, which was 2018, everything changed for my research because, okay, you know, yeah. So now when I do presentations, I literally just show like at the beginning, I'll show an image of Elizabeth Holmes or, or of the succession cast. And like, you know, most people, like, you know, most people in the room will know what we're talking about. Right. I won't have to, I, I don't yes. have to sell it as much. And so then we can go into, okay, you know, what is it? How can we prevent it? That kind of thing. Yeah. She was almost a domino effect. You know what? I, this is just a theory, but I think maybe 2015, if you're thinking about all of the hidden 
founder syndrome, all of the hidden toxic work corporate environments. I feel like 2015 was also the height of MLM success because it there was this intersection with Facebook, social media, and the boom of so many different MLM companies in that mid-2010s. I, I feel like Elizabeth, well, the Theranos situation was like a domino effect. Like then you had the Adam Newmans and then you had the Keith Ranieri's and the Nexium, And like you had, a, it was almost like that was the last drop in the bucket, 2015. And then we're like awareness sort of started spilling out all over society about like, oh wait, this is, this is everywhere. So like, I, I wonder if like that was the perfect time for you to start this research and, oh and to have I mean, that kind of, yeah, that's it. Cause I feel like we've all started to get more obsessed with the Facebooks and the Googles and the WeWorks and the places that, you know, are really big and in the news and they talk about their corporate culture. That's kind of been like a newer thing in our society to really like shed a uh, magnifying glass on that. So what is founder syndrome? You know, where can we see examples of this other than Theranos or <laughs> or the Roy family? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, these days, as you said, where can we not see it in a way? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and also thank you for, po- that's so interesting what you pointed out about the, the mid-2000s um, or 2010s. I never thought of it that way, but how how synergistic, right? Like I always think there's no, mm-hmm. there are no coincidences and um, yeah. that, you know, right. It was kind of, you know, in a way divinely timed that I started my PhD um, at that time. So in terms of the definition of founder syndrome, so yeah, I usually say founder syndrome is when the founder doesn't want to let go of control. So mm-hmm. when they want to hang on at all costs, so to speak, but I do have, I can also share a sort of more comprehensive definition that I came up with during my dissertation, because I was finding that, um, yeah, I just wasn't finding comprehensive definitions, so I I made up my own. So the definition I use is a malady that affects founders who are primarily driven by the need to control without clear delegation or succession planning, often using defense strategies such as dominance to maintain legitimacy. And within the organization, this often results in dysfunctional leadership and management practices and a social structure that forms around the founder to protect their image in the public eye. I mean, it sounds like the leader of a dysfunctional family, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I think about, at the least, maybe like authoritarian parenting, but then, you know, it also sounds like, you know, the alcoholic narcissist that's the head of a dysfunctional family. Because my mind, you know, goes to family systems. But how does this show up in corporate structure? Like, what are some maybe obvious or, and then maybe less obvious examples of how they create a toxic workplace. How the founders create it? Yes. I think, so I kind of see it as a spectrum, right? I think that the most extreme cases, they do an excellent job of forming. And this is essentially what I found in my dissertation that the founders that don't have founder syndrome, right? That would be all the way on the other side of the spectrum, do not form any social structure around them because they don't need to. There's nothing Mm -hmm. to protect, so to speak. You know, they're kind of, Um, They're thinking, they're focused on the organization and what it needs. Whereas the founders on the other side of the spectrum, and of course we have narcissistic tendencies, you know, Machiavellian, all kinds of things. Um, So because their main focus is control and remaining at the center at all costs, which means remaining as the primary decision maker um, and everything related to that. So what happens is a social structure even though it might not be obvious initially and may not be called that, it's not called that obviously, right. but usually an inner circle forms 
around the founder and they often are, are people who started with them from the beginning. So they may have actually, you know, a lot of times they've just come out of school. So university or college or whatever it might be, and it might be their first or one of their first work experiences. And so, you know, they get attached to the mission of the organization and the founder is the embodiment of that mission. And so as the organization grows and there's a need to put structures in place, or at least to look like there's structures in place, what that kind of founder values more than anything is loyalty and being able to control the person through that loyalty. And so what they will do is they will promote people who, who have been loyal to them from the beginning, who may not necessarily have the skills to, uh, to actually do those roles, but they are completely unwaveringly loyal to the founder. So they'll do anything that they want them to do. And so that's the first layer kind of around, I call the whole structure the founder pedestal with the founder at the center. And so the next layer would be okay. like the legitimizers. So in my mind, those are board members and funders sometimes who legitimize the person um, to the outside world. And then the next layer would be what I call the enablers. So those are people within the organization who may not be in the inner circle, but who are there, you know, doing everything else. And, and then, of course, we have the public eye supporting the whole thing. Interesting. So even the public portray or plays a role in this it's it plays the key role actually okay i believe yeah i think that because the founder is so driven to maintain a particular image so again if we take elizabeth holmes i mean it's just the best example ever right like we just have so much information on it and yeah yeah. if you think about it so much of how she was able to continue that for a decade Mm-hmm. had it's to a long do time. it's yeah. a long time especially in a savvy place like silicon valley with mm-hmm. quote-unquote savvy funders around it um but you know the way it was able to keep going and keep growing is because she would keep getting forbes covers or ink magazine covers or oh. a ted talk yeah. right and so we all watch those we bought those magazines, right? Yeah. And we all wanted the woman to succeed. Right. She was so, one of the first of her kind. And so the media go. and the public also kind of played into it. Interesting. Exactly. I almost want to ask you, can you tell me an example of someone who does not have founder syndrome? Because I can't think of anyone. But it's probably <laughs> because we just don't know of them. They haven't been all over the magazines or all over the everything. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So I can't give you a specific example because you wouldn't know them. Right. <laughs> because, but I can speak generally to those kinds of founders because, you know, a common question I often get when I present on this topic is, oh, are all founders like this? Right. Because you start to only see those stories in the news. And so, of course, why wouldn't you think that's all we know? So all entrepreneurs, founders have to be like this. But what it is, is that those are the founders that want um, to be in the public eye and also are the ones who are most likely to have something con- controversial happen that might be in the news. Mm-hmm. Whereas the founders that are on the other side of the spectrum um, don't, first of all, have no need to be in the public eye. And yeah. second of all, probably wouldn't be doing something that would end up in the news, right? They're just doing their jobs. They're just, they're yeah. just leading their organizations well. They're not so, trying to be splashy in exactly. any way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I did ask you on when I sent you the questions ahead of time. One of them was, are we drawn as humans to toxic leadership? Because I think what you just just described with the media kind of almost playing a part 
and, and drawing us in as well. Maybe in that way, we've been trained to seek out leadership that is more flashy, more mission driven, more pie in the sky, hope filled, all these things that aren't necessarily the traits of a healthy start of a company. I don't know. Yeah, I think, first of all, I love the question. <laughs> I think it's a really good question. Um, I think it's multi-layered. Um, one part is what you just said, which is, you know, we start to think leadership equals just that because that's what we yeah. see. And let me also say so much of what is out there in the mainstream about what leadership is, is white male leadership. Yeah. <laughs> but Right. So that is of a certain brand that is also a very masculine leadership. Um, that is a leadership that says you have to have all the answers. You have to show up knowing everything. And I think that that's a huge part of it is that even the women that, you know, are stepping into those roles, they're using the same model uh, okay. in a lot of times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So until we have better models, we're going to keep thinking that that's where we need to get to. For example, like, you know, I do a lot of coaching with all kinds of leaders and all kinds of people. And that is a common thing I hear that, oh, maybe I need to show up more dominant in the workplace and more whatever. And this is both from male and female mm -hmm. um, people that I talk to and anyone in between, actually. So, yeah, I think that that one one part of it is that it's what image what we think of as um, someone to follow. Right. Someone that can be a leader for other people. Yeah. And then the other part around um, sort of being driven toward missions. Yeah. I think there's something in it. Like, I do think we live in a time where people are kind of like lonelier than ever. This is, you know, more disconnected than ever. And so we're looking for community. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times those cults or MLMs or organizations with a strong org um, organizational culture provide a built-in community. Yeah, that's exactly where the intersection, I think, of this enters into the MLM world. I don't know a single MLM that's going to try to pull you in that does not have any kind of mission statement that's very community mission driven or change your life kind of mission driven. Mm -hmm. And at the center of all of those are somebody somewhere who started this whole thing, who had this vision for a different kind of life in America. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of a single successful MLM company owner, not talking about the corporate side, not like all the distributors, but a corporate owner that one has not maintained ownership of their company for decades and decades and no, no leadership has changed, um, you know, from the top down and two who has not. So yeah, there's their, you know, no succession plan unless they have children and then their children are the succession plan, but you know, they have plenty of time to indoctrinate their children, of course. Um, but I don't know of that existing and I've studied a lot. And two, I don't know of one who has not been like a very big personality, um, charismatic, even the ones that are on the more maybe introverted side, they have a partner that has got that charismatic. I mean, they've partnered themselves with somebody who's going to take them all the way, either the spouse, a spouse or um, a co-owner, co like co-founder. 
So because MLMs are so precarious, what kind of tactics do you think they could use to keep their mission going or to keep it going? And maybe what should we look out for to, I mean, I don't, this is an interesting question because I'm just assuming that all MLM founders have founder syndrome, but maybe not, you know? (laughs) So like, what should we look out for if they are starting to veer into, you know, more of a toxic place? (laughs) Well, you know, I think my first question around that is why do, why do we need an MLM type structure to begin with? Yes. Right. Right? Because. Good question. Right. Because if you think of any, just like sort of a traditional business structure that doesn't require you to pull other people in to make your money in the sense that like, you know, if you think of of a traditional way of marketing, which is just like you put out an ad and then the person has freedom, you know, like you see an ad for a hamburger, maybe five days later, you might buy a burger. You have total free will. No one's going to hold you to account if you haven't bought it or your best friend's not going to make you feel guilty (laughs) if you haven't bought that thing. So my question is, why do MLMs need to exist in the first place? You know, because the truth of an MLM structure is that it's just like the mafia. Mm -hmm. And the structure of the mafia is that only the people at the top truly get paid. Yeah. So therefore, the whole structure is only designed for the people at the top. And, And when you say people at the top, I still see that as the founder because the underlings of a maf- mafia boss, if we're using that analogy, are expendable. Yeah, exactly. You know, unless someone overthrows the big boss, the mm-hmm. even like his second in command, like the, the top distributor owners or the top distributor earners who are running these big sales organizations, they are still expendable. Mm-hmm. And exactly. that's the part that really got me studying because I'm always going to be studying what I'm doing and trying to get better at it. Mm-hmm. So being an active participator in an MLM business for five or so years, I kept studying all these people that would lose their downlines because they said something that was against the founder or I, you know, or people who would just jump ship to a different founder because they felt like their founder had betrayed them, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they took a bunch of their crew to a different MLM Mm -hmm. or some people who had no idea that their entire, you know, like their mother, their, their spouse themselves, that they all lost their distributorship because one of the family members went online and said something negative about the company. And that to me felt so risky (laughs) and, and it felt like, Okay, I know that I I mean I definitely think there's a lot of unhealthiness from a lot of the top earners of MLMs, you know, the big distributor type people who stay in it for decades and they, you know, keep selling the dream. But they're also really they're expendable too. The only person that's not expendable is the mob boss. <laughs> and yeah, so that's that's interesting. That's exactly- because they can fire, quote unquote, even though they don't technically work for the company, but they can take your distributorship away and you lose all that money. And then they just find new people to replace you. Exactly. So these kinds of founders expect unwavering loyalty from everyone else and give no loyalty to any other people aside from themselves. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. They ha- they give no loyalty back five years in. I realized this company does not care about me. And I thought that they did. 
And I, I had believed for four or five years that they really did care because there had been things that had happened to me with my business where there was like a glitch on the website and somebody in my downline lost a rank because the website said they had this much sales, but they actually didn't. So then the month turns over and they lose their rank and that's like a huge chunk of their paycheck. So the company would fix it. Like for the for in the early 2010s, <laughs> the company fixed it. And so we were like, oh, look at this. They care about us. And I think they could just, they could afford to, you know, they could afford to fix it when things were going gangbusters. And they wanted to create this false sense of loyalty and care. And they always said, we care about you. You are our first and foremost, like, customer. You are, like, our people. And we believed it. And then, you know, a couple years later, the website crashes. These other things happen. Distributors start to get blamed. Something happened to me with my personal paycheck where I lost $3,000 because somebody was allowed to like buy something from another distributor and it took it away from my like sort of quote unquote like overall sales and so I lost three thousand dollars and the next month I was supposed to buy a house <laughs> and wow. so I thought okay well they'll fix it you know like this was a fluke like that never happens and they were like mad at me <laughs> and like uh, we got yelled at on like the corporate phone call that we tried to call in to get them to fix it. And all these other leaders that used to step in and be like, okay, well, we'll help you fix it. We're just like, sorry. And I was like, oh, this is such a precarious system. I thought it was safe, but it's not. And so I see the leadership just being very fickle. I don't know if that's a thing. Is that like something like a fair weather loyalty giver? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. And that is so stressful. And um, my perspective on that is there's still zero loyalty being given to you in that situation, in the sense that everything is a form of control. So, okay, um, that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, if you did you <laughs> did you watch Succession by any chance? Yes, I loved okay. it. Watch all four okay. seasons. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So you know how there's an earlier in the, one of the earlier seasons, Kendall, the old, the son, I was about to say the oldest son, but he's not the oldest actually. Um, yeah. Um, but you know, remember he commits like a crime basically, right? Mm -hmm. Something kind of bad happens. And his dad who up until that point, you know, has been contentious with him and they've had a tough relationship, whatever he does him this quote unquote favor where he basically just says, I'll take care of it. Yeah. I remember that. Right? So Kendall thinks, my dad loves me. So he shifts his loyalty back to his dad when he of was course. trying to un overthrow him the whole season. Yeah, Of course. Exactly. Whereas the dad, who does not have any loyalty to anyone other than himself ever, ever, the way he sees that interaction is, I have something over him now. Yeah. So that's what was coming to my mind when you were sharing, because... As you, because you said you you mentioned something like oh they care about you know this made it seem like they care about us, mm -hmm. but that, those are just um, symbolic performative activities to trigger that emotion in someone. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also saw that scene as him. That's in Kendall's best, or that's in Logan Roy's best interest as well to cover it up. Exactly, because he doesn't want the bad press for himself. Exactly. He was doing what was best for himself and it just happened to be something 
that was also good for Kendall. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, yeah, he's just looking out for himself. Exactly. Interesting. So I, I'm realizing now that I am Kendall Roy. <laughs> the world. Well, you were. You were. Yeah, we but, all were. Yeah. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. Okay, so we've discussed this pretty well, but I would like to know maybe some other examples, if any, that you can think of, of what the toxic founder, and toxic is overused. I really like founder syndrome because it denotes like this is a whole systemic disease that's going to spread throughout the organization or the company. Are there other more subtle examples of things that they can do to maintain control or that they will employ to create unhealth in the workplace or the structure of the company? Yeah. Yes. And thank you for calling it a systemic disease, because I think that's really one of the main things I want to like surface in general around the conversation around this, that, you know, so much, you know, when we hear some of these stories in the news, one of the most sort of common things to say is, oh, that founder is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Or like, oh, and, and and what that does is it puts them in just this box of like, oh, this is an anomaly. It's right. just a crazy person, whatever. When yes. the truth is much closer to the systemic issue, because that founder wouldn't be in that. They may have some certain tendencies, but they wouldn't be in that role or committing that fraud or whatever it might be if they didn't have the support around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the things to look for, I mean, this is definitely things that have come out in my research um, are around how information flows within the organization. So it's not that every single thing should be transparent always and forever, but there are key things that people should know about. And if there's ever silos within an organization, especially across departments that really should be talking to each other, yeah, that's a big red flag. Um, I have a number of people I've interviewed who were in high level executive roles in some of these organizations, both nonprofit and for-profit, who were never shown the budgets that they were supposed to be managing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if they ever tried to get any of that information, they would just be given the runaround. And then, of course, if anything did go wrong with the budget, they would be held responsible. Interesting. I'm thinking about... So from the MLM corporate structure, from having been in it and studied others, the information siloing is at an all-time high. Like there's a department that does not have a phone number that you cannot call that is sort of in charge of assigning uh, new people to new distributors. So like people that may just sign up on the website or something. Mm Mm-hmm. They're responsible for that, but they're also responsible for like moving distributors around if somebody's unhappy or something. And they're responsible also for your paychecks Mm -hmm. and how you are paid at what rank. And you cannot ever talk to them. (laughs) It's never, you you can call and talk to customer service and they can send a message for you, but you cannot talk to them. Wow. Unless you have a lawyer. I have heard of a couple people who have lawyers and they've got to talk to them. (laughs) <laughs> and then legal is completely separate from the conduct department and the conduct department is completely separate from when you just call to ask questions about customer service and like everything is siloed and you have to have a different contact and they don't communicate with each other. And so the, the things around like FTC regulations, like what you can and can't say for like your income statements or all or what you can and can't say about like FDA regulations, like what a product can and can't do. All of that is in a completely different department 
than someone you would call and ask a question about, can I say this? You know, like if you're if you're curious and you actually were to call and say, can I say that this product does this for my health? They have to like get a message to someone else. <laughs> it's so intricate, the process. And then people who have worked there have also said that customer service representatives are usually like these very poorly paid, like low end of the totem pole employees. And they don't know most of what's going on in the company as a whole. Right. It's very interesting. Yeah, that tracks. So siloing information, that's good to know. What else? I think, you know, I think there's a lot of things that get mistaken for a regular way to conduct business, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Here's one. Um, People reading your emails, like literally tracking your emails. For example, the organization where I used to work, um, <laughs> you know, so this is, by the way, a different thing. And then, of course, your work email, your employer owns in a sense, right? So right. so they can have access to it in the, you know, if, the, if anything ever happened in the future, obviously they're allowed to have access to it. But what I'm talking about is the founder receiving every message you ever send without you knowing And the way, for example, I've seen that happen, especially in the place where I used to work is, um, you know, if I would send an email to a few people with the founder not copied and the response would come from the founder. Oh, wow. (laughs) Right. So there's weird things like that, that I think people start to normalize within organizations um, that the founder even normalizes, right. That they, Mm -hmm. they make them feel bad for even asking why something like that would happen. I think, you know, I think the other thing is a lot of thing. a lot of times with these founders, they have one face that is to the public within the organization as well, like a mask, I would call yeah. it. And then you have these moments. I heard this recently somewhere. I don't remember where exactly, but the phrase was when the mask slips, mm-hmm. there are always moments when the mask slips and you kind of get these little glimpses and it's definitely harder to see when you are not working directly with the founder. Right. Um, But there's still elements of that. And I think the other thing is a lot of times people think that negative messaging they may get from an executive within the organization or anyone else is coming from the person themselves when it's actually the founder. Yeah. I mean, that, I feel like that particular type of, especially when it was meant to trickle down and kind of gaslight everybody into staying the same, uh, you know, keep keep the status quo, like keep going. MLM founders usually tell their top earners certain information, and they're supposed to kind of disseminate that down to their sales organization. And when you hear, you know, 20 different leaders saying the same thing the same way, and answering these real questions people have, like, are our paychecks getting cut? And they're like, no, it's not going to affect that very much, you know. And they have the same pull quote that they're saying. It starts to feel strained and robotic. And you're like, y'all are not answering the questions from yourselves. <laughs> you are answering this question as if you were someone at the top. Exactly. And they're given a script usually. Like, yes. Yeah. Or informal, but that's the case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know a lot of times with MLMs, emails are accidentally leaked or the founders berating like some of their top earners are accidentally like a phone call is accidentally leaked or 
those kinds of things that would be more of the mask slipping in our world exactly. of, oh, wait, why are they talking like that? I didn't think mm-hmm. that that was who they were. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. So shifting from the founder themselves, because I think with MLMs, we are all little baby founders. And I, I was <laughs> I was telling you, I think I could have easily developed founder syndrome myself. And I've since talked with most of the people I worked with closely on my team. And I was like, was I okay? Like, when did you feel like I was overly intense or like I was pressuring you to do anything? Because I tried to do an MLM without pressuring anybody to do anything, which is really, it takes a lot of a mental and emotional energy. It can be done, but it has to be done in like a unique, like flash in the pan bubble to have success. And then your success is not going to (laughs) last. But Mm -hmm. I think that like, At times, you know, I did buy into the corporate, you know, information spread from top down. And I did try to defend corporate leadership or ideals because I believed in what we were doing and I believed in the mission and the products and all of those things. And I see people who are still stuck in their own founder syndrome world who are still in it and they just can't get out because it would be admitting I have to let go of control and I did something wrong. So what would be things to look for if you are an MLM leader and you have, you know, even just 20 people that, you know, are under you, what would be things to look for to see yourself like the beginning phases of starting to develop founder syndrome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting in terms of how you're framing, like, you know, that, that you think you might have it just by emu- like in a way emulating some of those qualities. I definitely don't think you truly have founder syndrome, but I do understand the the factor of only having that kind of leadership be elevated Mm -hmm. within an organization so of course then you start to emulate those qualities because that's how things are supposed to get done so to speak Mm -hmm. Um, so I really really do understand it and you know um, I think as I mentioned I have this study on on the trauma of people coming out of toxic founder-run workplaces and some of the things we're finding there is is actually very similar to what you said in terms of like people feeling like they then have to go back and apologize to the people they worked with. And because they, they felt like they were acting a certain way that was out of alignment uh-huh. with their own integrity or their own character or whatever it might be. So that would be my advice. That's the thing I would say to look for is, well, first of all, I would say, do you have ways in your life to connect with your own intuition and who you really are and your own inner voice and to cultivate those because when you're in those crossroads moments, when you have the chance to, for example, as you were saying, put pressure on people or put pressure in a certain way, it's going to be your inner core. That's going to say, wait, that doesn't feel right. That's not even who I am. Mm -hmm. So I think the big like litmus test is, Am I acting out of my own integrity regardless? Like, can I separate what the organization wants from me or what the founder wants from me or what would appear as quote unquote success? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and does this feel right in my bones, so to speak? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard when you're inside the bubble because so many things are normalized. Mm-hmm. And so I think another factor is also ensuring that you have people close to you, around you, that are not in any way affiliated with the MLM so that they can keep you grounded. Yeah. So what kind of things would be normalized in a founder syndrome culture? 
Well, I think berating people, mm. period. I think, I think using strong language or, um, you know, another one, for example, would be like finding out personal information about people and then using it against them mm. or using it to know what their situation is or whatever it might be. You know, for example, like you shared a little bit about how you had a critical moment around an MLM experience where you had purchased a home, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So in some founder syndrome organizations I've seen, because don't forget for the founder, information is key for everything. And that, that includes information about other people. So they will find ways, even if it doesn't seem like they're the ones that are asking or whatever, mm-hmm. to find out where people are in their lives and what are their critical things and, and use that to keep people to hold the power over them basically, but without you knowing that's the, that's the crazy part about it. Um, so I think anytime someone's trying to get like personal information out of you and it doesn't feel right, you know, or it doesn't, it doesn't align with whatever you're doing in the job at the time, that would be a red flag. I think like with everything always and forever, if it seems too good to be true, it, it usually is. I know. Why is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, because human nature is to want the shortcut. Yeah. Even, I even like would buy into, I, I tend to be, you know, somebody who's like, okay, suffering should equal. I think my, the, the way that I got easily roped into an MLM is because I used to have this belief that suffering is the only way to get to your goals. So I was like, okay, well, I'll work really hard at this for four or five years, and then I'll have this big pot of gold at the end. And I feel like maybe in some ways I worked twice as hard because I also had to buck against a system that was pretty gaslighting in nature to people's true needs. (laughs) And I still thought somehow that working through all of that would still create this utopia at the end of the rainbow, at the end of the hard suffering rainbow. But I don't know any job that requires such a suffering buy-in other than just jobs that take advantage of people like sales. There are other sales jobs that take advantage of, you know, a workforce. So I think that to me was also a red flag of just like, why am I having to buy-in in the beginning of this $2 billion company that I'm supposed to suffer for four or five years. <laughs> and then my family's supposed to suffer. Like our, you know, like our, I won't have a lot of time freedom. Even if I was financially responsible doing it, you know, I'm, I don't have any time freedom and I'm supposed to suffer. And then I get a reward. I think mm-hmm. there's something interesting about MLM founders and the way, the reason they choose that as their business structure in the first place. And, and I, I think a lot back to Nexium. Like the whole foundation of Nexium was like human suffering is great. Your ego has to suffer so you can grow and become a better person. Even got to the point that like victimhood is not really victimhood. Like suffering's great. And then you look at how toxic that got. <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going with this other than I think maybe that's a red flag that I would throw out there as well is that it seems like these founders do choose a model of suffering to promote their business and that seems automatically like a red flag to me that's a really interesting observation um i have actually heard that 
that particular aspect emphasized, particularly in organizations or charities that are religious in nature? Yes, which of course, many people I know and myself come from that background. So that mm-hmm. is why it easily dovetailed into that. Yes. Mm-hmm. It also dovetails with a lot of people who are burnout from the nonprofit world. And somehow we pick a different answer that's still sort of the same, um, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. And also weirdly mission driven. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, too, to think about. I wonder if the founders rely on the mission-driven aspect to be a way, because, you know, everybody says nobody joins a cult, and you don't choose to join something that's going to suck you in, and you don't know you're vulnerable at the time. And I always thought, like, well, I don't, I didn't feel like anyone was playing on my vulnerabilities. I didn't feel like, because I picture, like, cult people out there, like, who's weak and vulnerable right now? Let's go get them. But I think that was a, in very nature, built in and baked in. Like, let's play on all these people that think that suffering is just a part of what you're supposed to do to get anything that you deserve or that you're, get your needs met. And let's just bake that into the whole model. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite cult researchers, whose name is um, Yenya Lelik, who's a sociologist, mm-hmm. she she has mentioned this idea that cult leaders are lazy, actually. <laughs> and so it's not at all that they're preying on, you know, weak people or whoever. It's actually the exact opposite. They want yeah. the best and the brightest mm-hmm. because they don't want to be doing the work. They want to be feeding off other people's efforts. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, under that umbrella, that's part of where those of us that that do have had experiences in these kinds of workplaces, um, it took us, it may have taken us a moment to figure out what was going on because we're trying to justify it to ourselves and you don't want to think that you're not capable or smart or whatever it might be. But usually, in fact, in a lot of, I don't know about MLM specifically, but I can tell you in a lot of founder syndrome organizations, one of the MO, you know, sort of like normal ways of operating for founders is to poach people from other companies. Mm -hmm. And the reason that happens is they see something they want, right? Something in that person, their skills, their background, their network, whatever it might be. And so they find the ways to entice them in. But then once they're in, they don't care about the person. They just wanted that thing. Yeah, that absolutely happens. Company owners will poach other highest diamond type leaders um, of other companies. If they've seen somebody grow fast, they have these things called bridge deals where they'll kind of entice you because you're making a ton of money with a company and they'll entice you to come over to their company with a deal where they'll pay you a bunch of money up front for a couple months while you get your stuff going and growing. That's crazy. I yeah. mean, crazy, but not at all crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not, it doesn't, sense. it makes complete sense when you think yeah. about it. It's not anything I would have imagined joining an MLM 10 years ago, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So one last question. In the case of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, like she lasted a decade So there are these founders that create these really unhealthy workplaces and then unhealthy company structures, and they somehow seem to still be around for 
a decade or two or three or four or later, what are ways that they last? Like what, I guess maybe what do we look for? Because I think I would have thought, okay, well, this has been around for 30 or 40 years. This person's probably not that that unhealthy, you know, like they've stood the test of time. But what are <laughs> some red flags, even if they have lasted into the second and third decade of their company leadership? Oh, I would say not even if, especially if. Okay. Okay. So when I was collecting my data initially, I specifically focused on founders who were leading their organizations long-term. Okay. And so a lot of the founders and founder organizations I've looked at, they've been leading for 20, 30 plus years. Interesting. Yeah. And in fact, those systems become almost bulletproof. Oh. Because the structure just becomes stronger and stronger. And even though people get churned out because the the turnover rate is always high, by the way, in these kinds of organizations, the tricks they can use and the things they've played it with and whatever it might be just get stronger. And other people employ them more and more so probably. Do you mean other? Or other people that are their enablers maybe unknowingly employ their tactics. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, again, like, you know, really like the cult structure is the easiest, you know, I think the most like clear way to look at this. Like, even though a lot of these organizations don't don't use that word, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about those indoctrination dynamics. Right. If you got indoctrinated and you're around other people who are completely indoctrinated and the founder keeps feeding that and they keep having an even stronger drive to keep themselves in the public eye in a certain way, it's, it's, it's really hard to shake that. The other thing is a lot of these organizations are very, a lot of these founders actually are very litigious, Mm -hmm. right? So they will go after anyone who like, I don't know, is trying to write a media piece about them or a documentary or something like they'll shut those things down. That's why sometimes it takes a really, really long time for some of those stories to come out and, and some, you know, never do. And if you're a $2 billion company, you have a great legal team. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you have probably friends in powerful places. Yeah. Well, Amway is a great example of that as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, friends all the way in Congress. Many yep. founding, uh, many people who are at the start of the company are in Congress. Exactly. So that's really good to know. So like a red flag, a huge red flag would be an MLM that's lasted more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. I always yeah, thought that's so this is really like kind of turning my mind around because I had thought that was a good sign because they didn't like burn out all their people. But no, that's not true. <laughs> because well, there's go ahead. Well, I just was gonna say, I mean, if they've been around for a while, the next questions I would ask is, is the founder still the leader? Yeah. Um and, and yes they, is the answer at all. Yeah. All so if the answer is yes, that's the biggest red flag of all. And then the next layer is, okay, but who are the people, maybe there's people that have stuck around, but who are they? Yeah. <laughs> and are they people that have ever had any other kind of work experience? Are they people who, what are, like, who are they? <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. So the, um, sorry, I said one last question. <laughs> so like, no, this insane. is like, <laughs> I mean, your answer really surprised me because I think I had just thought, oh, well, this is just the fluke industry where companies that have been around with the same founder for 30, 40, 50 years, those are the kind of companies that they could be healthy or unhealthy. You don't know. but Because many MLMs are 10, 15 years or younger, most of them, mm-hmm. because 
they don't tend to last or they will completely disband their MLM structure and just become a company that sells directly online. Mm-hmm. Because the MLM structure is used to create market awareness and create like market saturation. So once that's achieved, you know, we're really, the distributors really aren't needed anymore. And that was a big reason I got out because I saw Amway and New Skin and these companies that have been around for more than 40 years, they no longer had distributors that made money. Uh, you know, you can look that up online. It's hard to find, but you can find it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so they, their average distributor made like 40 or 50 grand a year. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not what they're promising. You know, that's not what these people were making in the eighties, you know? Mm-hmm. And I realized that if it's been around a long time, it's going to eventually go that way. But these new ones that pop up, the ones that like seem like they're new, but they've actually been around for 10 or 15 years. Maybe those are the more insidious options because they still have the same founder. They've been around for at least a decade, um, but they seem new because you're just now hearing about them. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard because it's not like, you know, it's not like I would say a blanket statement that, oh, anytime you see a founder that's been running it for 30 years, you know, it's automatically a toxic workplace. But if there's a founder, you know, I've definitely interviewed and and I've studied cases where the founders absolutely don't have founder syndrome. Um, and they've been running the organization for, for 20, 30 years or more. Okay. But so that then, does happen. Okay. Yeah, of course. But then the way they approach their whole organization is different because by then they might already be working on a deep succession plan mm-hmm. um, to ensure that in whatever five years, you know, someone else can take over or, you know, something else can happen. Like they're constantly thinking, like their questions are around, sort of how does the organization live beyond me um, and how does it live well beyond me? Whereas founder syndrome founders are very happy to go down with the ship. Yeah, that that's good to know. Well, thank you so much. This was really, really eye-opening and very helpful. Oh, truly my pleasure. I mean, what a juicy conversation and such a delight. And I'm so glad you're doing a whole series on this and thank you for including me. It's been a delight. So this episode kind of blew my mind a little bit, as you heard toward the end. I really thought when I joined my particular MLM, I really thought it was like a solid one because the people who started it had been around for 30 years, 20 years when I started, and they were still in charge. And the company was still a company. And I thought like most MLMs, I didn't know at the time, but it seemed like most MLMs don't make it, which is true, but they can also disband and rebrand. And and maybe there's just 10 original MLMs and they're (laughs) constantly disbanding and rebranding. Who knows? But it made me think about my founders a lot. And this past summer, I actually went back to my company's convention. I did not know exactly what led me to do that. But from that one experience, this whole podcast was born because when I went back to Salt Lake City this last July, 2023, I had a lot of thoughts about my founder. The founder, my founder has been passed away for five years and is still very much placed in that founder position. My company is one of those companies that Dr. Kislenko talked about 
being something that extended beyond, you know, like it's bulletproof, like it's been around for 30 years now. And I thought a lot about my company's founder because when I went back to convention, I almost got sucked back in. (laughs) So next time, we're going to chat a little bit about convention and a lot about my company founders, Gary and Mary Young. I said, it is so rewarding for me to have people that when I say, I'd like this to happen, they don't say, well, okay, we'll see. They say, it's done. Nobody pushes back. They say, we'll find a way, even when it doesn't seem possible. Folks, everything in this world is possible when you have a desire in your heart. And you have a concept in your mind, you put those two things together, there is nothing more powerful force inside of you. And then when you bring God into the equation as your partner with the essential oil to amplify your energy, nothing is impossible. Thank you for listening to Model Little Cult Member. This is Erin Jones. I'm your host, and also I produce and write this show. This show is edited by David Jones, and the music from the show is from the talented young composer, Caleb Conkin. You can find me over at Common Cult Pod. I am chatting about the show over there, and also if you want to follow along and share a story or leave a comment, Go head over to Instagram and you can find me at Common Cold Pod. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.